Good evening, folks. Welcome to Virtually Speaking Counterpoints, our new Tuesday show. Always good to listen to Brubeck, isn't it? Hope you enjoyed the intro as much as I did. This is Gaius Publius. I'm the regular week three host of VS Counterpoints, and tonight I'll be talking with Dr. Stephanie Kelton, an economist at the University of Missouri at Kansas City and one of the leading proponents of modern monetary theory. Dr. Kelton is chair of the economics department at UMKC. She's also editor of the blog New Economic Perspectives. She's a regular commenter on radio and television, as well as a regular guest on Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. As you'll hear, she's always interesting and always clear. Those Virtually Speaking appearances, by the way, are must-listen in my book. In the first of our two pre-taped segments, we talk about what money itself is, how it's created, what forms it takes. Money is such a basic concept, yet it isn't what you think it is. It's even simpler than you think it is. In our second segment, we'll explore an idea David Graeber raised in his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, namely that capitalism, as it exists today, what I've been calling modern capitalism, is really one of those systems that if it doesn't constantly expand, it collapses. What is capitalism really? Is David Graeber right? Between the segments at the bottom of the hour, I'll comment on a notion you may have run across, the notion of unpeople. Who are the unpeople of the world? Hope you enjoy the show. Now, Dr. Kelton. Dr. Kelton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be with you. Gaius, thanks. Uh, you, you know and I know, and maybe some of our, our listeners know also, that uh, David Graeber's book, Death the First 5,000 Years, is really an important piece of writing because it approaches the concept of money in a way that's both natural, understandable, and different than the standard theory that is always put forward by economists going back to uh, Adam Smith, that money is something that's essentially coinage. Uh, or something like coinage, maybe wampum or something, and that it replaces systems of direct barter. Uh, Graeber says, no, money, money starts when people go in debt to each other, which happens kind of at the beginning of civilization. Would you tell us what, in your view, is money at its essence? Yeah, I mean, I tend to like Graeber's treatment, um, and as an economist, I am pretty aware of the shortcomings of the way that money is treated in economics, in virtually all of the textbooks, as you said, um, economists don't do a very good job with this story. And so uh, they repeat these simple stories about how money was invented to overcome the difficulties or inefficiencies associated with barter exchange. And so, you know, people just suddenly, spontaneously decide to use beads or shells or feathers or little rocks or whatever the case may be all on their own without any coercion or uh, anything like that from the state. And they're just simply trying to find a more efficient way to conduct trade. And so what Graeber does in his book is actually do the, do the kind of research that I wish economists would do uh, and go back and look at the history and origin of money and pay attention to uh, the work of numismatists, anthropologists, sociologists, and, and the like, who actually have a much richer, uh, more full understanding of why money was invented and um, what its essence is. And so Graeber comes down on the side of, you know, look, money, money is really old. It's at least, as he says, 5,000 years old, but it was invented not by societies of people who were just trying to find a more efficient way to trade, you know, coconuts and fish, um, but rather by the early palace communities, temples, and, and early later states, right, that um, money is a way of uh, recording the debts that we have on one another. And so the easiest answer to your question, I guess, is that money is a device that's used to keep track of debt. That is what I got from Graeber, too. It's, it's really very clear. It, there's also the notion of virtual money. I think you would call that fiat money in modern monetary theory, but virtual money versus uh, money that's coins or, or some kind of a hard, hard currency type money. And I think 
if I remember Graver correctly, he implies that the earliest instances of money were really virtual money because you need to, I give you two sheep and you give me a cow and obviously we're not even. Somebody owes somebody something. What is that? And so they need to create something called a quatlu or a, a, a fish wing or something to say, okay, you owe me three fish wings just, just to have some kind of common unit of measurement. Does, does that seem to be correct? Well, I don't know exactly. I, I don't think that Graeber comes down uh, very favorably on the whole question about whether barter economies actually existed. In fact, I, I thought from my reading and recollection of Graeber is that um, he says that there's pretty scarce evidence that societies were ever organized along the lines that um, economics textbooks suppose, that, that there were ever societies that just purely existed as barter societies. So I don't know about that. So in your view, what is the origin of money? Well, I mean, I think you've had Michael Hudson, my colleague, on as a, as a guest, or at least maybe Jay has. Uh, and Michael's written an awful lot on this and uh, looking at ancient Mesopotamia. And this is, of course, all in Graeber's work as well. Um, but money emerges, you know, this is not my unique area, ancient monies and so forth. But you, you've got in the earliest stages, 5,000 years ago, thousands of years ago, a palace community um, and a priest, and you, you impose debt on people, and there are units of account, and you're keeping track of those obligations. And it's perfectly reasonable to refer to those debts and the denomination in which those payments are due as money. You know, sometimes I'll tell the story, and, you know, I'm only slightly tongue-in-cheek when I do it, but if you talk about how Britain successfully colonized and monetized uh, populations in Africa, for example. So, you know, you're talking about a population of people who were not bartering to get by. These were primitive communist societies, okay, and they did not use money, but they also were not organized around um, gains for trade and, and exchange and barter and so forth, right? And the British come over, and they land in Africa, and they have a look around, and they say, you know, there are terrific resources here. You guys have got all kinds of stuff we don't have back home. Why don't you sell some of it to us? Because Britain, of course, was a monetized economy. And so they said, here, we've got British pounds. We'll pay for some of these resources. And the African people looked at the British pounds and said, you know, you've got to be kidding me. The queen looks lovely and all, but uh, we just as soon keep our stuff, so cheerio and safe trip home and all of that stuff. And the British said, well, we're not, we really, really do want this stuff, and we're not sailing out of here without it, so uh, we're going to call you a colony, and you are going to be indebted to the crown, and as, uh, as a colony, you are going to be responsible for making tax payments to the crown. And so, you know, you're going to have to pay pounds. And the Africans said, well, hang on, we don't have any pounds. How are we supposed to pay the tax? Aha, the British said, well, we have a way for you to get some pounds. All you've got to do is sell us some of these resources that you have. We'll pay you with the British pound, and then you will have the means with which to settle your obligation to the crown. And so it's just one example, um, and I'm not doing so much injustice to the way it actually took place with that simple story either, of how, uh, how a primitive society, a non-money-using society, could be monetized by an authority who comes in, imposes a liability, in this case, taxes. It could be fees, fines. You know, there's something that has to be paid in money, and voila, you know, the trick is done. That's excellent and understandable. I think I would agree with that also. Let me try to summarize that because I know that people who listen to shows like this are, are very interested in getting a, a handle on these basic concepts. So if I understand you correctly, and I, and I know you're not the only one saying this, the way a state-controlled money is created is that the government who has all power, presumably, or much power, simply says, 
you owe us taxes, and this is the only way you can pay us the taxes you owe. We will create this thing called pounds or whatever and find a way for you to acquire them, and then you can use them and only them to pay your obligation to the state. That, if there is any other form of money, like trading in wampum or something like that, it will drive that out of, out of existence in that civilization. And that de facto creates money uh, for that country, for that, for that entity. Did I say that correctly? Well, I think I was really with you all the way up until the end when you talked about uh, a competing currency potentially driving out the state's currency. Uh, and maybe I'm not, maybe I didn't understand exactly. But yes, what, what you're saying is, is exactly consistent with, there is a, a German economist by the name of George Friedrich Knapp, spelled K-N-A-P-P. Uh, he wrote what was called the State Theory of Money. I think it was published in 1921. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, in his famous treatise on money, two volumes, um, in the opening chapter actually refers to Knapp's work. And uh, Knapp is sometimes referred to as uh, someone who wrote about chartalism or chartalist money. And Keynes refers to Knapp's work, and he says, look, the age of chartalist money is at least 5,000 years and I think this is where Graeber gets the title, you know, for his book, 5,000 years at least, we've had this state theory or this state money, chartalist money. So, yes, if the state is sufficiently strong that it can make and enforce the tax laws, and that's really important, right? Enforceability is very important. So in Keynes's words, he says, you know, that, that chartalist money is – at least 5,000 years old, and it comes about when the state claims the right to write the dictionary. And by that, he means to say in what unit it will make its own payments and accept payment back to itself. So once the state is powerful enough to claim a position where it can write and rewrite the dictionary, because remember, in, in Europe, they rewrote the dictionary, right? They said it's not going to be the lira anymore. It's not going to be the Deutschmark anymore. We're rewriting it. It's going to be the euro now. It wasn't the people in Germany or the population in Italy that decided to rewrite uh, the unit in which payments are made. It was the state that decided. And, in fact, in Germany, popular opinion was uh, very much against giving up the Deutschmark. And so this is a power that rests with the state, provided that the state is sufficiently strong, the state apparatus can enforce its tax laws, then there is no competing currency that's going to come in and drive out. You know, it doesn't matter if we all decide to start conducting some of our affairs in Bitcoin or anything else. We're not going to drive out the U.S. dollar, provided that the United States government continues to assess sales taxes. You can't go to the gas station and put gas in your car with bitcoins, right? You're subject to a state sales tax, and that's in U.S. dollars. And the same when you go to the grocery store and you got the income taxes and you're making your payments in dollars. And so um, the idea that some of these competing private currencies would force out or edge out the state's currency, I don't find very plausible. I, I may have said that backwards. What I yeah. meant was that the... If there is a competing currency, uh, Graeber has a story about a small town or village where people were trading um, IOUs that were given out by a certain bar, for example, or a certain restaurant, a certain inn. Uh, they were trading those IOUs between each other as a way of paying off, settling their debts with each other. But as soon, you're right. As soon as the state comes in, everything else becomes meaningless because your first obligation is to pay off the state. That's what the state is. It's the elephant in the room. Yeah, so, that, and in fact, Adam Smith has a quote, in the wealth of nations. This is a short passage, but he does uh, recognize exactly what you find in Graeber and in George Friedrich Knapp and in Keynes, where he makes a comment about the, the prince. Once the prince uh, decides what he will accept in payment of taxes, Smith says, that thing automatically becomes valuable, right? That its value is tied to its acceptability in payments to the state because it will settle uh, obligations, get you out of debt. In other words, it becomes a valuable instrument. So to bottom line this part, let's say 
I, I think I'm safe in saying that we would agree that money is that thing that will satisfy your obligation to the state. Whatever form that thing takes, it, it's, it's defined by the state and it's accepted by the state and only that is accepted by the state. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of narrow definition. I don't have a problem with it, but of course there are all of these other money things. So sometimes, you know, in my own work, I've written about uh, and I sometimes refer to a hierarchy of money. And so there are really lots of different things that we could consider money, and Knapp sure, sure didn't limit himself to just one uh, money thing, one type of instrument. But the state's money is very special because it will, it will have greater acceptability. It will circulate more widely than other forms of money because of the state's decision to accept it back in payment to itself. So it's not to say that bank deposits aren't money, uh, or that, you know, money market mutual funds or other sorts of financial instruments couldn't be considered forms of money, money things, but they differ in their degree of liquidity, how liquid they are, and how widely they'll be accepted and so forth. So that's probably too wonky. <laughs> well, I think that's correct, though, and, and I, I'm only being narrow in, in a formal sense, you're right that uh, if I own a farm, if I can convert the form to dollars, the farm to dollars in a form that the state will accept either as a uh, transfer from my bank to their bank or as just an actual dollars that I can walk into a into a government office with, then that form that farm is a form of money as well. It's a form of wealth, but ultimately it, it has to be fungible into the thing that the state will accept, which is all I was trying to get at. I've heard you talk on, I mentioned in the introduction, your excellent shows with Jay Aykroyd on other virtually speaking shows, your excellent conversations with him. And I've heard you talk about how money gets created by the government. Would you retell that for our listeners? What does the state do to create money? Well, it, let's just, maybe, maybe it makes the most sense to do it by way of example. So, you know, this is the age of modern money, and you used the term fiat money earlier. And, you know, most of the money that is created today is created electronically. We're not talking about government using a printing press and, and sending paper bills off to make payments for these things, for the things that it purchases. So let's say I've retired and I'm drawing Social Security, and I'm sitting at home uh, in front of my computer screen, and I've got my bank account deposited in front of me and I, I see, you know, $1,000 in my account and I wait and I wait and I say, well, I know today's the day that they deposit my Social Security check. And then, you know, boop, 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 there's some little keystrokes taking place somewhere and all of a sudden the balance in my account goes up to $3,200. Well, I just got my $2,200 Social Security payment. How did that happen? Well, it happened because the federal government gave instructions to its bank, the Federal Reserve, to make a credit to my account in the amount of $2,200. That's, you know, let's say that's what I get every month. You know, the question, how, how did they create the money? Well, they use a keyboard. And, and it sounds kind of shocking to a lot of people who don't really understand how money is created, but the, the Fed is actually pretty candid when it comes to describing how it goes about creating money uh, and on behalf of the U.S. government. So, for example, when Ben Bernanke was sitting down with Scott Pelley in an interview on 60 Minutes, and Scott Pelley said to him, you know, the Fed, is, there's all this money being spent and created, and what is that? Is that taxpayer money, or what's going on here? And Ben Bernanke said, oh, it's not taxpayer money. You know, the uh, banks just have accounts with the Fed, and when we spend, we use the computer to mark up the size of their account. And that's exactly how he described it. So it's not much more difficult than that. You know, the government spends by giving instructions to its bank to credit somebody's account. So that can happen through an entitlement payment or a, 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 some kind of money that is owed to a person. You used the example of Social Security uh, payments, the monthly payments. It could also happen through pro procurement, right? If the government says, I need X amount of Jeeps for the Army, it will credit the account of the Jeep manufacturer. Exactly right. It could be Lockheed Martin. It could be Halliburton. It, you know, any, any of these contractors, you just say, you know, it's, it's a $200 million payment, and the payment is made 
via instructions from Congress, instructions to spend, and the credits show up in the bank account of the recipient. So that money is created when it when it leaves the the offices of the federal uh, the, the the federal government, the Treasury Department, and lands in somebody's hands, and that way they can they can spend it. It's now in circulation. Well, see, and the that's state the really that's the really interesting thing because it doesn't actually leave and land. It doesn't exist at all until it's keystroked into some of the accounts. So in other words, the government doesn't have any money that it is spending. I know it it sounds counterintuitive to think of it this way, but if you think of the government's payments as creating new money, which they certainly do, and the reverse of that, so when I, when I write a check to the IRS every quarter to pay my taxes, the government is taking money out of my account, they're debiting my account, so my balance goes down, and they credit the Treasury's account at the Fed, so the balance goes up, that's the Treasury's account. But to say that the Treasury actually gets something or has money, we don't even consider the balance in the Treasury's account at the Fed part of any measure of the U.S. money supply. We don't call it money in any conventional sense. It's just addition when they spend and it's subtraction when they tax. And on net, you get to figure out whether they're net adding to the money supply or net subtracting from the money supply. But there is no limited pool of dollars sitting somewhere that get transferred or taken from A and they land in B. It just doesn't work that way. That's a really excellent point. And I, I, I want people to who, who are listening to this to think about that for a second. Let's take, a, let's take an extreme case that the Fed, and, and I've heard you speak about this before, so I, I'm kind of... Um, leading to something you've already talked about, that the Fed creates a trillion-dollar coin, or the government, the Treasury, creates, creates a trillion-dollar coin and then deposits it in its bank, and it sits there. The question then is, is money created? And the obvious answer is no, and you can explain why, because it's yeah, just I mean, sitting there, right? Yeah, and also, you know, this it gets difficult because uh, I can remember Alan Greenspan when he was chairman of the Federal Reserve sitting uh, under oath, you know, and testifying in one of these uh, instances. And I don't remember who asked the question, but they, they held up, it was some member of Congress, holding up a credit card and saying to Greenspan, is this money? So this question about what do we want to consider money, is that is it, this dollar bill is money, but what about my check? If I hold up a checkbook, is this money? What if I hold up a credit card or a debit card? What if I have a CD? What if I... So there are all these different, you know, what are we going to consider money? What I'm saying is, on that trillion-dollar coin example, if the U.S. Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury, because the authority rests with the Secretary of the Treasury, had decided to mint a proof platinum coin and stamp it with $1 trillion and walk over to the Federal Reserve and deposit it, and the Federal Reserve credited the Treasury's account with a trillion dollars we don't call that part of the U.S. money supply. It's, it's not any, it doesn't get counted in any conventional measure of the money supply. So on that alone, I would say, you know, it doesn't create money, at least not in any way that we would measure it. But the balance is there on which, because the rules are what they are, the Treasury could then make payments that Congress had already authorized. It couldn't just spend you know, on its own, it can't go out and buy 1,400 new aircraft carriers without Congress authorizing it. But uh, it, it was a way around the whole debt ceiling debacle so that the payments that Congress had already authorized could have been made. And so you would have had that positive balance in the account that could be drawn down to make those payments. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that, again, gets around an anomaly of our system, uh, two anomalies actually, that one is that the government can't dictate by the executive that money is spent. We have to go through what we call a democracy uh, mm -hmm. that as government, ha Congress has a say. And, and the other is that we're, 
we're in a situation where there's this debt ceiling, which, which imposes a limitation on spending, which is really artificial, and we're one of the few nations in the, in the world that actually does that, so that's a workaround. But if people think about, again, what is money, normally what money is is dollars in circulation or money in circulation by, measure of, by some measure. So uh, if money's not in circulation, it almost doesn't exist. The Fed could exactly. print uh, a billion $1 bills and bury them in a vault 20 feet under the ground, and that money's not in circulation. Nobody is enriched by it. That money might as well not exist. It really doesn't exist in the form of dollars. It exists in the form of what's in circulation, which goes back to the idea that what is money, it's it's, it's when government buys something and credits somebody's account or gives them money in some form, then people who receive that money can then use it in exchanges with each other as well as in exchanges with the government. Yeah, Which I mean, you know, it. private banks create almost all the money in our system today. And the way that they do it is exactly the way the Federal Reserve does it in the sense that they don't have to have money in order to make a loan to someone. Someone walks in the door of a, a private bank and says, I want to take out a loan to expand my business or start a new start a new business or, you know, buy a laptop for school or whatever it is. You walk in, you ask the bank for a loan. If the bank decides you're a good creditworthy customer and they can make a profit if they lend to you, they use the computer and they mark up the size of your account by however much the loan is. And so suddenly, you know, your account goes from $100 up to, let's say you're going to buy a car all of a sudden you got $24,000 in your account. You know, you just borrowed money for a car. And where did the bank get the money? Well, they didn't get it from anywhere, right? They just used the computer and mark up the size of your account. And your point is, if, if we're creating money, but it's not getting into the economy, it might as well not exist. So suppose everyone in the country suddenly walked into their bank on the same day and said, I want to take out a loan. I want to home improvement projects or new cars, computers, whatever the case may be. And just suppose that all the loan demand was satisfied. The bank said yes to everybody. And so they marked up the size of all of our accounts. And we all decided not to spend the money. The money supply would go up tremendously. There would be a huge spike in what economists call M1, a measure of the U.S. money supply that includes bank deposits. M1 would shoot through the roof, but if none of us went out and bought anything, what difference would it make? That's like putting the government printing the dollars and putting them in a hole in the ground. Right. But your other point, I think, is, is the key point here, and, and people should keep that in mind. The bank, if, if I go to the bank and get a loan, I now have, let's say, $2,000 more in my account that I can go to the grocery store and spend. That money came to me from the bank. As you say, the bank doesn't necessarily go to the government and get the $2,000. It is empowered by the government to create it. And once the spendable money is in, uh, in circulation in the economy, it gets used and it exists. It, it exists because it can be used. And that means that the amount of money in the economy ebbs and flows without any reference to anything that uh, right-wingers or, or – uh, kind of uh, freshwater economists would call printing money. There's just no such thing as printing money in that sense. There's crediting people's accounts, and then people can use that credit to go buy things. That's right. Yep. Well, well thank you. Uh, we're coming to the end of our first segment. We have uh, a little bit of commentary coming up, and then we will rejoin Dr. Kelton uh, discussing one other, actually two other ideas that I think you've folks will find interesting. Stay tuned and thank you. And now tonight's editorial, Who Are the Unpeople? In a talk he gave on the subject, Noam Chomsky starts with specifics, the unpeople of Libya, the unpeople of Africa, but the heart of the idea is the general, the concept itself. Who are the unpeople of the earth? Chomsky opens with the unilateral bombing of Libya by what he calls their traditional imperial aggressors, France and Britain, plus the United States, in violation of UN Security Council Resolution 1973, which called for a no-fly zone, a ceasefire, and measures to protect civilians. Some protection. Remember, this is Libya we're talking about in Africa.
The triumvirate, as Chomsky calls them, blew right past that set of UN requirements, which they had agreed to uphold, and the African Union wrote to defend the sovereignty of African nations after a history of colonialism and the slave trade. Chomsky notes, the African appeal can be found in the Indian journal Frontline, but was mostly unheard in the West. That comes as no surprise, he says, Africans are unpeople, to adapt George Orwell's term for those unfit to enter history. I hope you can see where this is headed. There's another example, this time involving the Arab League. Chomsky on the Arab League's move from unpeople to people and back again to unpeople during the same period. On March 12, the Arab League gained the status of people, Chomsky says, by supporting UN Resolution 1973, and then on April 10, the Arab League reverted to one people by calling on the UN to impose a no-fly zone over Gaza and to lift the Israeli siege virtually ignored. That too makes good sense, says Chomsky. Palestinians are prototypical on people, as we see regularly. So what has Chomsky said so far? that the people of Libya and Palestine are unpeople. They can be treated like things, treated in ways that no European would treat another European. Their towns can be bombed at will, their sovereignty freely ignored. Why? It's obvious, isn't it? They're Africans, they're Arabs, brown and not like us. Imagine bombing Swedish towns to get rid of a hated ruler. This leads to the concept of unpeople itself. Who are the unpeople of the world? Unpeople are those you can abuse and kill, decimate and dislocate without conscience or consequence because they aren't fully human or human at all in the minds of their abusers. It's that simple. Unpeople are things. American Indians were unpeople, squatting on land just waiting to be settled as whites spread across the empty American West. Arabs were unpeople who, as writers like Agatha Christie put it at the time, crawled like flies through Palestine and the Middle East until white Europeans, the only truly humans, infiltrated and took over. Oddly, in Palestine, those same Europeans, ethnic Jews, were unpeople in the lands they were fleeing from. Suffering doesn't always lead to wisdom, does it? It goes without saying, or should, that the drone dead in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, also brown, are also unpeople. Here at home, unpeople are all around us. The poor, the brown, the black, the homeless, the hopeless, the drugged out and cast out, more recently the unemployed, the wrecks and the unruly, the old, the losers in that hyper-Christian take-back-America formulation, the occupiers and the foreclosed upon. All unpeople are the modern N-word, broadened to include the unincluded everywhere you find them. Are you the young people? If you find yourself homeless or scooped up by the national security state, you will be. Even that white skin, if you have it, won't set you free. How does this relate to tonight's conversation? In the minds of our stateless financial masters, the very, very wealthy, the David Cokes and the Robert Rubens, the hedge fund kings and queens, the handful of people who control our lives and in the United States control our government, in their minds, all of the rest of us are unpeople, things to be moved like pieces on a chessboard, things to be used so that their lives can be made easy and comfortable, so that their need for power and hubris is unchallenged and fulfilled. As we will see in future conversations, the very, very wealthy of the world, the capitalists, to bring it back to this conversation, are bringing us to ruin. In the case of climate, that's ruin on a truly global scale, a world historical scale. If we don't stop them, the world of the next generation will be nothing like the world of the 20th century, nothing at all like that world. Stay tuned. In future weeks, we'll pursue the subject further. Now, Dr. Kelton again as we discuss capitalism as practiced today. We're back with Dr. Stephanie Kelton of the University of Missouri at Kansas City, Chairman of the Economics Department. Uh, Dr. Kelton, welcome again. Thank you. We're discussing in the last half hour the notion of what is money and how money gets created. It's created by government who, in essence, makes a purchase or, or pays one of its debts, like a Social Security payment, or makes a purchase, like buying a helicopter or a train or something and crediting people's account. If uh, Something that's puzzled me, if that's truly what money is, if money is 
the, a credit from the government into somebody's account where they can spend it. Why does any government need to go through the formality of making loans and issuing bonds? Oh, that's a good question, and it's, it's good that you use the word need. Why does it need to? And the answer is it doesn't need to. Uh, it, re, it is required to under current law. In the U.S., for example, if the government is going to run a deficit, which uh, is sort of the unfortunate label that we use to describe the situation uh, when the government adds more money than it subtracts. Okay, we label that a deficit. So if the government wants to spend 100 and is only taxing back 90, then we say, well, it's running a deficit of 10, and therefore it must sell bonds to, quote, finance the deficit. And so under current law, the government is required to offset deficit spending with bond sales. But if you really think about it, what's happening is that the government is spending 100, taking back 90, which leaves, let's say, $10 in the non-government sector, that then the government can come in and sell treasury bonds and take the 10 out of the economy, replace that 10 with a treasury bond. And so what people are getting is actually an interest-bearing alternative, the treasury security, to a non-interest-earning asset, which is just cash or a you know deposit in their account so it's actually a pretty good deal for uh the non-government sector in that they end up with something that's going to pay them a little bit of interest that's really interesting i i'm i'm glad you agree that it's not a necessary process that it's just an option that we choose to follow it's also interesting that in times like these and i i suspect that times like these are going to extend for quite a number of years the actual interest paid by treasuries is almost zero. Yeah, I mean, there are longer dated securities that, you know, pay a percent, a percent and a half, some even, uh, you know, two and a half, three percent. Those securities are out there. So um, people are getting a little bit uh, shorter dated uh, securities, may not even be keeping up with inflation. The problem with the way the current law requires the government to uh, to offset its deficit spending is, of course, that all of those bonds that are out there are part of the national debt. And this then becomes a big political football for both parties uh, to talk about hand-wringing and, oh, look at the size of the government debt. This is so terrible. We need to start cutting entitlement programs or having austerity or whatever because the debt is, is so big. So, you know, that for that reason alone, it's sort of unfortunate that there is this requirement that the government offset spending um, by selling treasuries because it, it worries people that it adds to the national debt. Treasury bonds and bills and notes also have a place in the uh, in the investment economy in that they they represent an alternative to stocks and so forth and a, a kind of safe haven place for people to park money that they think is maybe the safest place in the world is to buy treasuries, which is one reason I think that treasuries are so high these days. But give, aside from that, aside from the investment option that treasuries offer, could you see the, the U.S. government, we're not asking a political question here, we're asking an economics question, functioning just fine if they just credited accounts and kept the books and didn't issue debt to offset you know, the, any imbalances? Do you think we'd function just fine? Yeah, in fact, more so now than ever before because uh, the, the Federal Reserve just a few years ago started paying interest on excess reserve balances, which means, let's go back to the example where the government's running a deficit, but let's make the numbers much, much bigger. Let's say the government spends a uh, trillion dollars and it only collects uh, $900 billion in taxes. Well, that leaves $100 billion added to the non-government sector. And so that trillion dollars that's spent, $900 billion comes out. Now you've got $100 billion in bank reserves sitting there on bank balance sheets. And banks are saying, wait a second, I don't want all these reserves that don't pay me anything. Okay? If there's no interest being paid, they'd pick up the phone and they'd say, I want to lend my reserves. And there's a market called the federal funds market, and it's the place that banks go first when they have excess reserves 
and they're looking to lend them to make just a little bit of interest in an overnight market. So they lend them for one night, they get paid back the next day with a little bit of interest. So banks start picking up the phone. I've got excess reserves, I wanna lend. The other bank says, yeah, me too. The other bank says, I got them too. Everybody wants to lend, nobody wants to borrow, so the price of those reserves goes to zero, which is in, in everyday market language is to say the federal funds rate goes to zero. But the federal funds rate is the Fed's operating target. And so the Fed is targeting an interest rate somewhere above zero in normal times. And it does not let the Fed funds rate go to zero. So what the Fed normally does is step in and soak up those excess reserves by selling treasury bonds. So the Fed says, look, you want interest? I got interest. Hold this treasury instead of those reserves. I'll take the reserves. You take the treasury. And so it's the Fed selling the bonds that keeps the interest rate up. And so that's the way we used to do it. And so bonds were really important. That having bonds available for the Treasury to um, issue bonds so that the Fed could use them to maintain interest rates and hit their targets, that was really important. And that was the primary role of bonds was to allow the Treasury to, uh, to I'm sorry, to allow the Fed to hit its interest rate target. What I'm saying is now that the Fed is paying interest on reserve balances, it doesn't need the bonds to do that anymore. If it wants to discourage banks from, if it wants to keep the interest rate up, it simply pays a higher interest rate on those reserve balances. It doesn't need the bonds to do it. So it, would it be easier today to just stop selling bonds? Yeah. Uh, and the interest would be paid by the Fed instead of by the Treasury. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. It also occurs to me that what the Fed is doing to uh, the Wall Street banks and the other banks in the world is in a demand-driven recession, which is the price of something goes to zero because nobody's buying, it becomes the buyer of last resort, which mm -hmm. is exactly what I think the, uh, the Keynesians would say is, is needed in the general economy, and which, of course, is blocked by the political process. Mm -hmm. So let, let's turn to uh, something that's kind of fascinated me. I've been looking at capitalism. Um, I'm not a professional economist, so I'm trying to get economists' views on what capitalism is and how it can be described. And I, again, back to David Graeber for a second. I noticed a section in his book, I believe it starts uh, chapter 8, Credit versus Bullion and the Cycles of History. For those of you who have the book, it starts on two, page 211 of the hardback version. Absolutely fascinating chapter about systems, various systems, not necessarily economic systems per se, that must expand or they collapse. His, his example is uh, coinage, slavery, warfare systems like the Roman Empire, where a, a nation like, let's call it Rome, digs up, creates mines, digs up bullion, gold and silver, makes that bullion into coin, gives that coin to soldiers as payment, sends those soldiers out to conquer people. Those conquered people are then incorporated as slaves into the mine so they can make more bullion, so they can pay more soldiers, so they can conquer more land. And you've got this system where more soldiers, more slaves, more bullion, more soldiers, more slaves, more conquered land. At some, it's a Ponzi scheme. And at some point, that has to stop. And if it doesn't keep growing, Graver says, it, it will stop. It'll collapse. And thus we get what he says is ironically called the Dark Ages because that's when slavery died in Europe or one of the times when slavery died in Europe. And at some other point in the book, he says that modern capitalism as it's practiced is another one of those systems. And I don't believe he expands on that. So my first question, uh, Dr. Kelton, is, is that a view you share that modern capitalism could be described in this way? Well, modern capitalism, certainly uh, capitalism requires growth. That, I think, is, is right. I mean, a, capitalism is an economic organization that is fundamentally driven by the pursuit of profit. And so what that means is that you know, capitalist economies are about making money. Keynes referred to them in general theory 
in the same way that Marx referred to them in Das Kapital. And Keynes said, when we're talking about a capitalist economy, we're talking about a monetary production economy. What is a monetary production economy? And Keynes said, it just, it means what Marx said. It means that the goal of production is to start with some money, hire some people, produce some stuff, and sell that stuff for more money than you started with. That's what capitalism is about. And in order to continue to amass more money, you have to have growth. And, and so I think I'm in agreement broadly that, that that is fundamentally the case, that capitalism requires growth for its survival. You, you've on, on another occasion mentioned that this is what you called MCM prime as opposed to CMC prime. Could you elaborate on that for, for I, this our This is listeners? why I love your show. You, you never shy away from this kind of stuff that uh, most of the time, you know, you stay away from specifically to avoid lulling the listener to sleep. But your audience is so smart that you don't even shy away from this. Uh, and the yes, idea is, frankly, the idea is so clear. It, this is okay. not a sleep-inducing concept. Well, good. Uh, this, is, this is the way Marx, Marx described capitalism. And, you know, because what Marx mostly did was write about capitalism. People think of Marx when they think of communism or socialism, but, in fact, most of what Marx did was to write about capitalism. And the way that he described a capitalist economy, as you said, is this MCM prime depiction. And it's what I referred to earlier as starting with money and producing some intermediate thing, a commodity, that you hope to get rid of by selling it for more money than you started with. And so the difference between M prime and M is your profit. You always want M prime to be bigger than M. And Keynes agreed that this is fundamentally what capitalist economies are about. Whereas, you know, when Keynes was being brought up in Cambridge and studying uh, he was a student of Alfred Marshall's. Marshall wrote uh, one of the most important textbooks of, of its kind on economics in the 1800s, and it was just simply called Principles. And Marshall is the guy that comes up with the supply and demand curves that everybody is familiar with when they think of economics, right? The, the scissors, as Marshall referred to them, supply and demand. And so in the view of the classical economists, or really neoclassical economists, capitalism was about maximizing utility. You're supposed to, you know, capitalists produce things, and the consumer is king, consumer sovereignty and all that, and we want to um, purchase things that increase our utility. And, the, you know, utility is that warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you consume something, and that the goal in a capitalist economy is to start with a commodity and then sell it for money so that you can get a different commodity. So CMC prime, where we're always going to be buying goods and services. The goal is to get out of the ones that you have too many of or that provide you less utility and get into those that give you greater satisfaction. And Keynes and Marx just said this is a completely the wrong way to think about capitalism. It's a profit-oriented system. And if producers don't anticipate sufficiently high profits from producing things, they won't produce them. And if they don't produce them, they won't need the labor. And so they'll lay off workers and, you know, you get depressions and recessions and so forth. And so there are two very different ways to think about the orientation of the economic system itself. What's it designed to do? Improve um, well-being or uh, create profit? I think that gets to the reason I talk about modern capitalism because I can, I look around at the companies that I see that I sometimes get involved with and I see companies, especially those that are, are still led by their founders who really are in love with the product they produce. The, the money is not their primary goal, mm -hmm. but they're, they're in the minority, and I think that the, the people for whom the money is the primary goal is in the majority. I've seen in my lifetime and as I read back through history that capitalists who have been primarily focused on the commodity as opposed to the money fall into that first set 
and capitalists who are primarily focused on the money fall into that second set. And we can certainly say in the present that greed is so rampant and so dominant in the culture of the people who are using corporations to loot the planet, in, in my formulation, and then they're looting their companies through their executive compensation to the degree that they're making themselves kings of the world. So whether there was ever a time when CMC prime, where the goal was commodities, ever existed in, in, to a large degree, we're certainly in a time today where MCM prime, where the goal is simply to become richer and more powerful, is, is, is the dominant motivation, the dominant psychology of, of the CEO class, the ruling class. I, I, I think we could probably uh, agree on that. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible to do well and do good, uh, you know, to have a, a business that aims to pay its workers well and to produce something uh, with minimal damage to the planet and maximum benefit to, you know, your fellow man and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, if you're not profitable, you're not going to be around very long. And so I don't think you can discount too much the ultimate importance of being able to turn a profit because you can't survive. But you're absolutely right. I mean, look at the corporations that are making profits hand over fist, record profits. They're posting huge numbers and they're profitable companies. But if they miss expectations, if the expectation was that your, your profits were going to be a percent or two higher than they actually came in despite the fact that they're in the billions, uh, your share price goes down, and your board might fire the CEO. And this is, you're right; this is where we are today. So, I'd like to make a side point, and then get back to the to the idea that we started with in this segment. The side point is that, as someone reminded me, with respect to the punishment of executives who are accused of, of Wall Street fraud, no corporation acts; it's people who use corporations to act. Uh, corporation is an empty shell. It's, it's a thing. Uh, as Dave Johnson says, it's, it's a set of contracts. It may be a building. It's humans inside corporations who cause corporations to lurch in one direction or another. And this is just me to the audience. We, we should not lose sight of the fact that every corporate act is an act done by a human, not by the corporation by itself. But the point that we started with here, I think, still holds. If you think in a common sense way, I'm speaking to the audience now, if you think in a common sense way, what happens to a major corporation like GE that doesn't show an increase in profit? Uh, all of a sudden, they're gobbled up by the ones that are showing an increase in profit. They're, they're the prey in that world of dinosaur corporations. So it, it's common sense to say that corporations must constantly expand, must constantly improve their profit line, or they will collapse. Does that mean, Stephanie, that the corporations are – that this system of constant expansion is going to run out in the same way that the Roman Empire ran out, in your view? Well, I think it very well may, but I think we are a, a very long way away from that, provided that, you know, you can have growth but the distribution also matters. And of course, we're seeing that in other parts of the world. It doesn't matter much that, you know, GDP growth has turned from negative to positive so that we're no longer in a recession, but something of a recovery, however um, bleak and dismal it is. But if 90% of all the income gains or more are going to 10% of the population, that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable year over year, year over year. And then you can have, you know, the kinds of changes in society that um, bring about, I think, fundamental changes to the very institution and can be quite disruptive of capitalism. So distribution matters a lot. But capitalism, look, it has proven to be an extraordinarily resilient form of economic system, maybe more so than I would have ever imagined. And while it requires continuous growth, the expansion of markets and so forth, there is an awful lot of untapped marketplace out there in the world. And, you know, if the, if the gains continue to be shared 
as unequally as they are today, I think the end would come much sooner than if the gains are more widely distributed. I, I don't I don't know how much longer it can go on, but I think it can go on an awful long time. That's a good point and gets back to why I call today's flavor of capitalism, modern capitalism, because I think I mentally factor in the idea that the income the inequality, the increasing inequality of income distribution and wealth distribution is part of the modern system, at least as I would define it, that, that's, that we're not looking at generic capitalism of the 50s, of the 20s, uh, of the 1790s perhaps. We're looking at a system that has unique qualities and for me built into that system is not just the goal of profit, but the goal of extreme kinds of looting where we've got people uh, on unemployment and losing unemployment benefits because they are affected by laws bought by the capitalists whose stock market is at an all-time high right now. I mean, the reason that the Republicans and many of the Democrats are looking at uh, reductions to the SNAP program, the food stamp program, for example, and arguing about whether there's only going to be two million billion dollars in reduction versus 10 or 20 billion dollars in reduction only two billion dollars uh, both of these people are ruled by their by their big campaign contributors which are in essence the capitalists that we're talking about or at least the most important ones but let's give take as a given that this income distribution thing is is not only going to stay but it's going to increase because there's a kind of a rampant hubris that's going to cause that if we take that as a given just your own estimate how do you see this playing out? I know we're, we're looking at projections in the future and guesses here, but let's pretend it's just the two of us in a room. How, how do you see that possibly playing out? You're asking if the pace of widening inequality continues or that we see an increase in the disparity, or I'm, I want to make sure I understand you. If all of the current trends... Yeah. The destruction of the middle class of the United States, the income inequality in the world, all of the current trends not only continue but accelerate. How do you see this playing out? Wow. I, will, I will say that I think that the current masters of the universe would like what I described to be the case. So that's what they're working toward. Well, it's, it, they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction, if, if that's the case. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I think capitalism has been, uh, at least in the U.S., the system has been so resilient over the years, post-Great Depression, is because we put in place things like the automatic stabilizers that didn't allow conditions to get so vile that people actually took to the streets. And the automatic stabilizers just provide income automatically when people lose a job. You referred to SNAP. And so there are these various forms of public assistance that replace at least some of the loss when the economy goes through its inevitable contractions and growth periods. And what you're seeing Congress do today is attempt to whittle away at all of those different types of programs that form part of the safety net and, you know, at some point, if they, do, if they push it too far, the net is going to unravel. And what that means is that when the next crisis occurs, and it will come uh, because we did nothing to prevent it from recurring, and probably it will, uh, as my colleague Bill Black says, you know, we, we suffer recurring and intensifying crises, which means the next one will not only come, but it will probably be bigger than the last one. And if we weaken the safety net to such an extent that conditions for uh, a huge number of people become absolutely intolerable, they will take to the streets. You will see it will make Occupy, I think, look like a, a, little, a little bit of a sideshow, much ado about nothing. You know, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it in other parts of the world. We've seen it in Greece. You can't push austere. You can push people but you can't push them forever. And at some point, they will push back. People should get out a copy of the Declaration of Independence and read the first half 
that's Thomas Jefferson saying exactly what you said. Dr. Stephanie Kelton, Chairman of the Economics Department of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It's been a pleasure. Let's have you back and explore these ideas another time. No, it was great fun. Thank you, guys. That's our show. Thanks for joining us on Virtually Speaking Counterpoints. This is Gaius Publius. I'll be back again in four weeks. Next Tuesday, our host will be Nicole Bell. Have a good evening.